It's a new year. Are you looking for a church home, a church that will be welcoming to you and to your family, to your children, a church that is interested in meeting the needs of people? I'm Fred Jeff Smith, pastor of Shiloh Missionary Baptist Church, and I'm inviting you to come and share with us. Come check us out. You'll be glad that you did. stories in the Bible true? I need answers. Welcome to A Closer Look with the Shiloh Missionary Baptist Church. I'm Fred Jeff Smith, pastor of Shiloh, and I'm very happy that you chose to spend the next hour with us as we delve into the study of God's Word. We can't do what we don't know. Here at Shiloh, we want to spend time studying the Word so that we can rightly apply the Word to our daily living and make a difference in our community and in our world for Jesus Christ. Won't you join us now for a closer look into God's Word? Let's turn, please, to Judges chapter 16. And we are looking at Samson one last time, Samson part four. Uh, that's probably three parts more than y'all know anything about. Amen. Most people, when you talk about Samson, all they know is Samson and Delilah. Uh, but if nothing else, you have, you have come to know that there is more to Samson's story than just his relationship with Delilah. We finally get to that portion of uh, the story, which is really at the end of the Samson uh, uh, story uh, today in chapter 16. Up to this point, what have we learned about Samson? If you haven't noticed, uh, I, I don't know how much uh, individual study you all have done, uh, Samson takes up more than anybody else in Judges. Uh, Samson's story, which I find interesting, you, you take the nuttiest nut of the bunch and, and, and you tell more of his story than you do of anybody else's. It, it would have been nice if we learned more about Deborah. Than, than, than we do about Samson. It would have been nice if we had learned more about others than we do about Samson. But, but Samson gets the bulk of judges. And uh, what we have learned up to this point is that Samson has been a gifted person, uniquely gifted by God, but that he had very little appreciation for the gifts that God had given him. His story started in, in chapter 13. This is just a way of review to get up to where we are. It starts in chapter 13 where the angel of the Lord appears to uh, his father, well, to his mother. His mother is not named. And that's, that's another thing that, that we learn. If, if you go back and read, the only woman that's named in the Samson story is Delilah. Samson has a mother. Her name. Samson wants to marry a woman. We don't know her name. Before you get to Delilah in chapter 16, Samson takes up with a prostitute. We don't know her name. The only name 
that is mentioned of the women in the Samson story is Delilah. So, so, so I, I, I'm not being dismissive of Samson's mama by not calling her by name. I don't know what her name is. Scripture calls her Mrs. Manoa. That, 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 that's the best that we can do. The angel of the Lord appears to Samson's mother and later appears to Manoah, telling them that they are going to have a child, that this child is going to be uh, uniquely set apart to God. He is to be a lifetime Nazarite. Uh, most Nazarite vows are for a period of time. Uh, a month, three months, perhaps even as long as a year. Very few are those who are, are committed to the Nazarite vow for their entire lives. The other thing about the Nazarite vow is that usually the person enters into the vow voluntarily, stays for a period of time, and then leaves. In this case, the angel of the Lord says that this child will be a Nazarite for the entirety of his life. What do we know about a Nazarite vow? We know that it means that they shall not touch anything having to do with the grapes. It's not just wine. You're not supposed to eat grapes. You're not supposed to drink wine. You're not supposed to even drink grape juice, which is unfermented. You're not supposed to have anything to do with the grape at all. You are not to touch the body, the carcass of a dead thing. If you do, provisions are made for you to atone, to be cleansed, so that you can continue in the Nazarite vow, but you're not supposed to touch anything that is dead. And you are not supposed to let a razor or a knife come to your head. Your hair is not to be cut. This was supposed to be his life forever. But despite this charge from God, as we have discovered over the past several sessions, Samson is less than pious. First thing we hear about Samson is that he touches a dead thing. In fact, he kills something. And then later on, he goes back and eats what developed out of the dead thing that he killed. Uh, bees got into the carcass of the thing and, and, and made honey, and he went in there and pulled out the honeycomb, and he ate it and gave it to his family, to his parents, without telling them what it was that he was doing. He has been less than pious. When, when he goes to, to, to the wedding party for uh, this woman that he says that he wants to marry, that he, that he tells his parents, get her for me. This is who I want to marry. Uh, uh, he, he, he gets drunk and gets involved in a riddle where he thinks that he can win uh, a bet, loses the bet, and kills 30 folk to cover the bet that he lost. And then he, run, instead of going to his wife, he runs back home. And, and, and stays home until he decides that he's ready to go back and get the wife. And by the time he decides that he's ready to go back and get the wife, the prospective father-in-law says, well, I done married her off to somebody else. You embarrassed me. I didn't think you were ever coming back. I thought you were through with us, and I had to marry her to somebody, so I gave her to the best man. Now, if you, if you just got to get married, I do have a younger daughter. 
And she's even more beautiful than the one that you were interested in. I'm just telling you what the scripture says. And, 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 and I'll give her to you if you want. Samson says, that's not what I came for. That's not what I want. I, I wanted the one that I wanted. And he proceeds to tear everything up. He takes 300 jackals. King James Version says foxes. Other versions says jackals. He ties their tails together, takes a torch, puts the torch in between their tied tails, lights the torches, and sends them running through the fields, destroying their wheat harvest, their grain harvest, their vineyards, destroying everything, which is not just a destruction of the harvest, but it was a destruction of their economy. Because these were agrarian people, their economy was wrapped around their harvest. And so he, he sets it all on fire because he got upset. Well, when they realized what had happened and why he did it, they killed the woman who would have been his wife and killed the father as well. They, they, the, the Philistines took them and burned them alive in retribution for what Samson had done. And when Samson finds out that they burned them alive, then Samson goes and finds the jawbone of a donkey. And he proceeds to commit mass murder again. And he kills a thousand men, according to some versions. Other versions don't list the number. They just say a certain company or, or, or a number of companies of men. Uh, he kills them to justify his anger toward them. So what you have now is a tit-for-tat going back and forth. This is a man who has shown absolutely no inclination towards living up to the potential that God has placed within him. And yet, God continues to bless him anyway. When we last left Samson, he, he had killed all these folk, and then he turned to God and said, you know, I'm thirsty. Why, why, why don't you make sure I get some water? out of this thing. And, and, and God blesses him to cause a spring to pop up and, and Samson drinks from the spring. Now you get into Judges chapter 16. And when you get into chapter 16, I want to focus on verses 4 through 31. But there's a little bit being told in the first three verses that, that uh, we just want to hit at. We, we don't want to stay there, but, but we do want to hit at it. Samson went to Gaza, or Gaza, and saw a prostitute. He went to her. The news got around. Samson's here. They gathered around in hiding, waiting all night for him at the city gate. Quiet as mice, thinking at sunrise will kill him. Samson was in bed with the woman until midnight. Then he got up, seized the doors of the city gate and the two gateposts, bolts and all, hefted them on his shoulder, and carried them to the top of the hill that faces Hebron. Okay. What's significant about this? Significant is the fact that Samson takes the city gate with him. He, he, he lifts, we ain't talking about carrying them doors like those there. 
We're talking about fortress doors, huge doors, heavy, heavy, heavy doors that are so deep into the ground that they're supposed to be impenetrable, certainly by a person. It would take considerable force, considerable activity in order to burst through those doors. So we're talking about supernatural strength that Samson chose. And when he carries the doors away, Hebron is 40 miles from Gaza. Some folk can't carry stuff 40 feet. Amen. He carries the doors 40 miles away. The significance of, of, of what he does is that in carrying the doors away, he leaves the city open. No longer are, are they a strong military force because now instead of having a door that, that they can close, it's just an entranceway that, that, that's unblocked. And now the city becomes vulnerable to attack by Philistine enemies. It was evidence of how much strength Samson had. And, and, and the fact that he could carry these heavy, heavy city doors 40 miles away uh, uh, is, is just an indication of the supernatural strength that God had given to him. And it leaves you to ask the question, what could have been done? Not what did he do. What could have been done with that much strength if it was channeled in the right direction? I want you to, I, I told you, that, that this is not where I'm going to park, but I just want to stay here for just a second. We had a stoplight for just a second, okay? You ever ask yourself, am I maximizing the potential that God has given me? Have you ever considered all that God has placed within your care, all that God has placed at your disposal? All the talent. And, and don't sell yourself short. You've got talent. There's a lot of talent in this room. There, 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 there is a lot of intelligence in this room. There is a lot of experience in this room. There's a lot of natural ability in this room. There's a lot of God-given talent in this room. And the question needs to be asked, not by anybody else of you. You need to ask yourself this question. Am I doing the best that I can with that which God has placed in my care? That is the very definition of stewardship. It is our responsibility as Christians to make the most of that which God has entrusted to us. In acknowledgement of a couple of things. Number one, whatever it is that God has entrusted you with, it doesn't belong to you. It belongs to him. And in that it belongs to him, even though he, is, he has put it in your care, that doesn't mean that you can do with it whatever you want. 
the owner of your talent, the owner of your gift, has some expectation of what it is you're going to do with what he has entrusted into your care. That's the first thing I recognize, that, 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 that God has an expectation. It does not belong to you. It belongs to him. Second, you, you have to remember that at some point, you're going to have to give an account for what you did. Now, I'm not the, 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 the fire and brimstone preacher who's going to tell you you're going to hell if you don't do this, that, and the other. Because you, didn't, you don't go to heaven because you earn it. Uh, doing good works doesn't, doesn't merit you heaven. Heaven is yours because of your faith in Jesus Christ. So I'm not sitting here telling you that you're going to go to hell because you didn't do this, that, and the other. But what I am telling you is that God does have an expectation that you use what you have, and you have to give him an account. What did you do with what I gave you? God, Jesus tells the, the parable of, of a master who gives three servants a certain sum of money. One five talents, one two talents, one one talent. And he goes away. And when he comes back, he asks them, what did you do with what I gave you? The five talent man comes back and says, I made five more. Good. The two talent man comes back and says, I made two more. Good. The one talent man says, I ain't do nothing but his the talent that you gave me. He takes the talent from him, gives it to the one who now has ten, and, and uh, uh, expels the one who, who did nothing. Not because he failed, but because he failed to try. There's a difference between failure and failing to try. God does not condemn us if we fail. Anybody in here who's ever tried to do something has failed at some point along the way. You, you did not measure up. You did not meet the expectation. You, 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 you fell short of the mark. Is, is that not what sin is by definition? Sin means to fall short of the mark. All of us at some point or another have fallen short of the mark. But you can't fall short of a mark if you don't ever even try. God has an expectation of us. God doesn't give us gifts just for us to have. He gives us gifts for us to use, for us to employ, for us to, 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 to learn how to put with the gifts that he gives others. Because God doesn't give us everything, but he does give us something. And his expectation is that we learn how to take our something and mix it up with somebody else's something in order to accomplish his will. Samson was so strong that he could carry off city gates 40 miles on his back. And yet, with this superhuman strength, have we read of anything? We, 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 we're now in chapter 16, 13, 14, 15. We, we, we're about to go through four chapters. Have you read anything in those four chapters that Samson did with this strength that was positive? I'll wait. Go, 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 go back and look. Find, find me one positive thing that he did with all this strength. He ain't gonna find it, because it's not there. 
And it's a terrible indictment on, 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 on a person's record of life to say that you were blessed with so much stuff and you ain't done nothing with it. Okay, I said I wasn't going to park there. It, it was just a long red light, that's all. Now, now, now we're, we're moving on. Verse 4 of chapter 16 gets us into the Delilah story. Sometime later, he fell in love with a woman in the valley of Sorek, which means grapes. Her name was Delilah. The Philistine tyrants approached her and said, seduce him. Discover what's behind his great strength and how we can tie him up and humble him. Each man's company will give you a hundred shekels of silver. So Delilah said to Samson, tell me, dear, the secret of your great strength and how you can be tied up and humbled. Samson told her, if they were to tie me up with seven bowstrings, the kind made from fresh animal tendons, not dried out, then I would become weak, just like anyone else. The Philistine tyrants brought her seven bowstrings, not dried out, and she tied him with them. The men were waiting in ambush in her room. Then she said, the Philistines are on you, Samson. He snapped the cords as though they were mere threads. The secret of his strength was still a secret. Delilah said, come now, Samson. You're playing with me, making up stories. Be serious. Tell me how you can be tied up. He told her, if you were to tie me up light, tight with new ropes, ropes never used for work, then I would be helpless, just like anybody else. So Delilah got some new ropes and tied him up. She said, the Philistines are on you, Samson. The men were hidden in the next room. He snapped the ropes from his arms like threads. Delilah said to Samson, you're still playing games with me, teasing me with lies. Tell me how you can be tied up. He said to her, if you wove the seven braids of my hair into one fabric on the loom and drew it tight, then I would be as helpless as any other mortal. When she had him fast asleep, Delilah took the seven braids of his hair and wove them into the fabric on the loom and drew it tight. Then she said, the Philistines are on you, Samson. He woke from his sleep and ripped loose from both the loom and fabric. She said, how can you say I love you when you won't even trust me? Three times now, you've toyed with me like a cat with a mouse, refusing to tell me the secret of your great strength. She kept at it day after day, nagging and tormenting him. Finally, he was fed up. He couldn't take another minute of it. He spilled it. He told her, a razor has never touched my head. I've been God's Nazarite from conception. If I was shaved, my strength would leave me. I would be as helpless as any other mortal. When Delilah realized that he had told her his secret, she sent for the Philistine tyrants, telling them, come quickly. This time, he's told me the truth. They came, bringing the bride money. And when she got him to sleep, his head 
on her lap, she motioned to a man to cut off the seven braids of his hair. Immediately he began to grow weak. His strength drained from him. Then she said, the Philistines are on you, Samson. He woke up thinking, I'll go out like always and shake free. He didn't realize that God had abandoned him. The Philistines grabbed him, gouged out his eyes, and took him down to Gaza. They shackled him in irons and put him to work of grinding, to the work of grinding in the prison. But his hair, though cut off, began to grow again. All right, let's, let, let's just pause there for a second. First thing I want you to see, go back up to verse 4. It says something about Samson's relationship with Delilah that's not said anyplace else in the Samson story. Samson fell in love with Delilah. Look at verse 1. It says, he went to a prostitute and went into her. And I say nothing about love. Go back to chapter 13 and look what it says about the woman that he wanted to marry. It says he saw her and went and told his parents, I want her to be my wife. Never does it say he loved me. In fact, he never even had a conversation with her. Not, not one that's recorded in the text. He saw her, decided that he wanted her. But when you get to Delilah, for the first time, in the Samson story, we are told he fell in love with her. This, this is the point I, 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 I was going to make. Not that love can bring destruction, but erotic love is a form of intoxication. Bible says that there's more than one type of love. The Bible, the, the, the New Testament in the Greek, there are three words that are translated into love. Uh, there, there's agape, uh, which is the love that Christ has for us and that he expects us to have for one another. Uh, there is philo, that is brotherly love, uh, uh, companion love, friendship type of love. And there is eros. And, and, and eros is, is a passionate love, a, a love that, that a man has for a woman, a woman has for a man. Erotic love is a form of intoxication. When you are erotically in love with somebody, you don't think, help me. Camera ain't on you, it's on me. You ever been drunk? Well, let, let, let me put it this way. Have you ever been intoxicated? I, I, I'll take drunk back. Have you ever been intoxicated? Intoxicated, too strong a word for you? Have you ever been inebriated? Ha, ha, have you ever been in a place, in, in a state, where you are not completely in control? of how you think, of what you say, of how you act. Erotic love is a form of intoxication. And if you've ever been intoxicated, 
Or if you've ever been, of course, nobody in here is ever, because y'all ain't saying nothing. So nobody in here has ever been intoxicated. If you've ever been around somebody who was intoxicated, then you know that intoxication can lead to reckless behavior. Samson, for the first time, as recorded in the scripture, is in love. And being in love, he's about to engage in very reckless behavior. That, that, that's the first thing that I want you to see. Second thing is a point I, I've already made. Delilah is the only woman whose name is mentioned. And, and, and her name is mentioned because she plays a significant role in what is about to take place. In the Old Testament, women's names are not regularly listed. We saw this with Dinah. Remember when we were doing the study of, of, of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, and, and we got to Jacob's uh, children, and, and we know all 12 of his sons, but we only know of one daughter. It's not because he only had one daughter, but only one daughter is named, and that's Dinah, because Dinah and what happens to Dinah figures significantly in the Jacob story. In the Old Testament, women's names were not always given as an indication of the fact that women were not considered to be as significant as men. So the fact that Delilah's name is mentioned is an indication of how significant Delilah is to the story. Now, different people will tell you what Delilah's name means. Somebody will tell you her name means temptress. It doesn't mean temptress. The name literally, I, I looked it up this morning just to make sure I was right. Her name means dainty. She was dainty. Now, now you, you picture in your mind what dainty is. Whatever it was, she caught his fancy. And, 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 and he, he was enamored with her. But she lived in a place called the Sorek Valley. Sorek means what? Grapes. So he's living with the woman who's living in the Great Valley. For God, that was where his patience ran out. And, 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 and Delilah cuts his hair, collects her silver. Don't know, leave that part out. Collects her silver because, because she sent word telling him, hurry up and come. He told me the truth this time and bring the money with you when you come. She collects her silver. And then after he's asleep, they cut his hair. And when he arises, he no longer has any strength. It's because he has worn out God's patience. And at some point, if we are unrepentant, we wear out God's patience and we are made to have to deal with the consequences of our sinfulness. 
He arises. He has no strength. He is taken. He is bound. And then he is humiliated. Scripture says, first of all, they blind him. They gouged out his eyes. Second, they, they made him, they put him to work. They made him a slave and put him to work milling grain. But thirdly, it says that they wanted to make sport of him. They, they humiliated him. And, and specifically, if you read it in the Hebrew, the humiliation takes a certain form. That is, they stripped him of all of his clothing and made him run around naked. Blind, naked, and bound. That's a sermon. Y'all hear that sermon text one day. You, you, you. Blind, naked, and bound. That's how they left him. Completely humiliated, completely subject to those who had control over him. And, 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 and once this happened, it looked like it was the end for Samson. But the scripture offers a glimmer of hope. It says that as this happened to him, his hair began to grow back. Now, once again, because you're going to say, well, then that means that his strength was in his hair. Now, the, the, the mention of the hair growing back is a mention of God's mercy after chastisement. And if anybody has ever experienced the chastisement of God, our testimony is not that he chastised me. Our testimony is that after the chastisement, mercifully, he gave me another chance. I didn't deserve it. I don't earn it. It's not because of who I am. It's not because of how good a person that I am. But in spite of my wickedness, in spite of the justice that was meted out to me, God didn't leave me in a state of humiliation. But he gave me another chance. The, 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 the growing back of the hair is an indication that mercy prevails over justice. It's an indication that justice has a time limit. And, 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 and when, when the time limit on justice has run out, God is prepared with something else. And that something else is mercy. Samson is in a state of complete humiliation. He's, he, he, he's been stripped naked. He's blind and, and he's being made sport of. He's in an arena surrounded by the uppity ups of Philistine society. And they're jeering at him and they're talking about him and they're cursing him and they're laughing at him and they're making fun of him. And at rock bottom, Samson finally calls out to God. The only other time we heard Samson call God's name is when he said, I was thirsty. Won't you give me something to drink? But now in this state of humiliation, he calls out to God. He calls out to him in a very specific way. He uses a very specific term. Yahweh Adonai. The God who is sovereign. 
In other words, I recognize who you are. I recognize first that you are God. I recognize second that you are sovereign, which means that you can do anything and everything that you want to do. I'm asking you to look beyond my faults, look beyond my failures, look beyond my weaknesses, and I'm asking you to give me this one opportunity at redemption. Now, you ain't going to like what I'm about to say now, but I got seven minutes, then y'all know where you want to go. The prayer that Samson prayed wasn't a good prayer. If you recognize that he's God and that he's sovereign, and if you're asking for anything, why do you ask to die? Go back and read the text. Go, 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 go back and read what it says. Verse 28, and Samson cried out to God, Master God, oh please look on me again. Oh please give strength yet once more. God, with one avenging blow, let me be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. He essentially asked to die. If you really wanted to do something, I, I, I wish that you would have asked, help me to escape so that I can lead my people into victory against my enemies. But he said, no, let me die. For Samson's death was preferable to life. And his own concern was that as I die, let me take as many folk with me as I can. It's not much different. We're, we're, we're doing a study on uh, the minor prophets in the evening Bible study, and we hit Jonah a couple of weeks ago. And, and one of the things about Jonah that, that, that people might not get is that when Jonah's on the ship and the ship is in the middle of the storm and the people are casting lots and the lot falls on Jonah, and, and Jonah says, if you throw me into the sea, the storm will stop. Jonah was saying, actually, I'd rather die here in the sea than go and do what God told me to do. So I tell you what, j j just throw, Jonah could have said, God forgive me and stop the storm. Jonah could have said, God I, give me another chance and I'll go to Tarshish and do what you want me to do, which is what he ended up doing anyway. But Jonah said, no, throw me into the water and the storm will stop. In other words, I'd rather die here than live doing what God said to do. Samson says to God, let me die with my enemies rather than let me live for you. I'm trying to get you to see something. Death is not what God wants from you. God wants your life. God wants your life. God wants you to live a committed life. God's, you want to go home? God's going to call you home quick enough. For some of y'all, sooner than later. Amen. But instead of crying for death, instead of longing for death, instead of praying for death, why don't you pray to live? And pray to live better. 
with, with, with my second life, with my renewal on life, let me do better today than I did yesterday. There was a different prayer that Samson could have prayed than the prayer that he prayed. Let me avenge what they took from me. They, they took my sight from me. Let me avenge them for that by dying with them. And the end of the story is that his strength is renewed and he grabs hold to the pillars and if you've ever seen the movie he pulls the pillars down and all the people die and everything and, and, and that's how Samson's story ends. And I'm going to end by saying this. It could have ended a better way. Your story doesn't have to end in a bad way. You might be in a bad place. Everybody's been in a bad place. Don't let your bad place embitter you. Don't let your bad place defeat you. Don't let your bad place make you so sad that you think that the only thing you can do from your bad place is die. You can live. I've been in bad places. I've been in terrible places. I've, I've been in sad and sorry and sinful and sick places. And I thank God that there was somebody who told me this is not the last chapter of your story. You can recover from this. And, and, and I have spent my time from that point to this one telling everybody I can I don't care how bad your situation is I don't care how dire it is I don't care how sad it is I don't care how terrible it makes you feel this is not the last chapter of your story you can recover if you learn how to trust in the Lord with all your heart lean not to your own Understanding. Weeping may endure for the night. Joy.